0: For Manchester United, it's absolutely astonishing.
1: The double is definitely Manchester United's. Too far for Ronaldo to think about it. Absolutely sensational. It's red in Russia. English night in Europe is Manchester United's night.
0: Nothing is more humiliating or humbling than being somewhat pleased by a 2-0 loss to your biggest rivals, but that is where Manchester United are right now. Who is to blame? Well, we've heard it all before. This is a club that's been dragged into this position by top-level executives more interested in financial spreadsheets then silver trophies. We dissect that defeat at Anfield to Liverpool and more in series 5, episode 23 of the Manchester United Weekly Podcast with Harry Robinson and Jack Tate. Always in the Manchester United Wiki Podcast, we'll give you our youth, loan, and women's roundup. But first, let's talk about United and some team from down the road who may or may not be about to win their 19th title and their first in 30 years, and who insist that everything at their club means more than at any other football club. Um, that'll be. Probably enough, uh, enough bitterness for today from me. But let's talk about what this defeat really shows, Jack. It's, uh, it's another example of where Manchester United are as a club right now. Forget about Liverpool for now, but United have been, have been left behind in the dust, really, while Liverpool and City, our main rivals, have, have shot ahead. And, and why? Well, it's not Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It wasn't Jose Mourinho, however much he was to blame for certain things. It wasn't Louis van Gaal, however the boring the football was, and it wasn't even David Moyes. So, take it away.
1: Well, I think the state of this football club is really summed up by, as you said, the fact that even after a pretty, very convincing 2-0 defeat to our biggest rivals, you actually came out of that game not happy by any stretch of the imagination, but not too disheartened. I think it, you know, it's a sorry state of affairs when a 2-0 defeat to your biggest rivals doesn't make you absolutely seething through your teeth. And I I think we all were obviously disappointed and angry to lose to Liverpool but I don't think any of us were apoplectically angry because we all expected it to happen and I think you know it's it's tough for us to sit here and understand exactly what goes on at that top level in, in the boardroom at United but you can't have as many managers as as many different groups of players as we've had over the last six years and have absolutely nothing change on the pitch without pointing your finger at top level executives uh, and. It might be hard for us to to know exactly what goes on on there, but it's hard at the moment to yeah. think that the fault lies anywhere else. Well, I think
0: it's just even for the people who insisted that it, it was down to Mourinho or it was down to Van Gaal. I think for them now it now we've got Olegan and He's clearly he's not at the level of of Van Gaal or Mourinho, he isn't he? Hasn't got the same CV, and this was a point that people were making on Sky Sports last night, but because it is numerically the fourth manager, it doesn't matter how good Ole Gunnar or Solskjaer is as an actual football manager, because he is the fourth manager, and forget David Moyes, because that wasn't really Ed Woodward's decision. It's the third manager that Ed Woodward has, has given the job at Manchester United. And if he now fails, which, I mean, he's not failing, but he isn't doing... United aren't where they want to be, and there's not that many signs that they're on their way to being there, even though I think He Solskjaer might not be
1: failing, good. but he's not exactly succeeding.
0: Exactly, and if Solskjaer is to go then there is there's only one common denominator in, in the in the failings of Manchester United. And I I was actually before the game I was thinking, um it can be kind of boring to constantly go back to the, the glory days or whatever you like to call call them, but to compare. But I find it particularly funny that Sir Alex Ferguson used to leave Wayne Rooney on the bench at Anfield because he didn't score there and now we just about put out a team of, of full senior players. And that is the that is the decline. And and I, there was a few Liverpool fans I know I was speaking to before the game who were saying, Well United are where Liverpool were five years ago. And so for all the misery, there is an opportunity for Manchester United to become one of the best teams in the world again. And yet, there's no confidence because of not just the ownership, because the Glazers are ultimately responsible for for most of this, but it comes down to having not just bad owners, but also a bad executive level beneath that as well. It's the two combined.
1: Yeah, and and it's pervading. It's a culture at the club now of accepting mediocrity I think and, and I think a lot of the time it's t- trying to take the easy way out you look at every every decision we've made since David Moyes left the football club and at every single turn it was an attempt at a short-term solution whether it was Louis van Haal who was brought in as this savior who was going to immediately take us back to the the heights of the Premier League without recognition that it was going to take a few years whether it was bringing, bringing in Jose Mourinho the, the epitome of short-term solutions in, in football you know one of the most successful managers managers in in the world who has never managed to stick stick around at a football club for more than three years every single turn it's been a short-term solution every single time and it, it, you can't run a football club that way you look at the way liverpool have done things and as much as you as you hate to look at liverpool and, and manchester city and the likes of our those teams our rivals and say we should be copying them Obviously, we have to do it our own way, but they are the blueprint that that long-term planning of having everyone on the executive board fully focused on getting results on the pitch and turning the club around, but recognising that it's not going to be an overnight process. When Jurgen Klopp took over at Liverpool, they they were pretty poor for the first two years. They were finished sixth in Jurgen Klopp's first year. I think his, his win percentage was, was something like 35% after a year and a half at, in charge of the club. But look at what they're doing now. And I'm not... Not saying that every manager that we could be looking to appoint is going to have this kind of success, but we have to start looking at this as a long term solution. And I don't think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was ever was ever that long term solution, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. To to go back to Ed Wooded in particular, because this this result is it's it's funny enough, it, it it's so far from being the worst of the season, it's so far from being the worst of, of even even the last couple of months. But what it is is you don't come away from it thinking that was that was completely shit but what you do come away thinking is this is another moment where you can look back in 10 years time and say this was another point where you thought where has this gone wrong it's another it's another benchmark to think right this is this is a discussion that needs to be had because you're comparing to liverpool because you're coming away not just not really gutted by a 2-0 loss but thinking that there was some positives in that, which is utterly ridiculous. and Thinking we'd actually
1: played all right and we'd effectively yeah. been played off the park for most of the game.
0: Yeah, and it, it wasn't that necessary. And Patrice ever said it after the game, could United, could Solskjaer have put out a side and done better than that? Probably a little bit better, yeah. But looking at the squad that United have, you, you weren't expecting more than that. And in the second half, and no. we'll move on to the actual performance in a second, but I just want to finish on, on Edward Ed Wood was... The the thing about the focus on Edward Wood is that he's he's brought it upon himself. No one can argue that the blame being dropped at his door, at his feet is is unfair because you look back at the last six years, not the mistakes he's made, but at how because they're a different story and obviously deserves blame for that. But at how he's publicly conducted himself, you go back to twenty thirteen, yeah. and it was reported clearly via the club putting something out. That Woodward had left United's pre-season tour in Australia to deal with urgent transfer business, and um, before that he'd spoken about how United could do things in the transfer market that other clubs could only dream of doing. Well, PSG have have bought Kylian Mbappe for 200 million. United have bought Dan James for for, how much I love him from Swansea for 12 million, and and Woodward has so often made it about himself. So there, there, can't be any complaints after he left Australia. United miss out on Fabregas to Chelsea, bailed to Real Madrid, and Tiago to Barcelona. And you just a uh, Tiago to Bayern Munich, I think it was. Sorry, and you just that's my point is that no, no one can say well it's unfair to drop it all at his door because it has so often been about Ed Woodward that when it comes to the failures, he's got to take it. And he
1: and he makes it that way. it's, uh, it's yeah. not that's not fans trying to put everything on him. Like you said, it's publicly him putting himself out there and putting himself in the firing line. And if you're going to do that, great, but back it up. You know, there are only very few people in the world in whatever line of work they're in that can put themselves out there like that and say those kind of statements and then actually come and back it up. And when they do, it, it looks great. I mean, the obvious uh, the obvious one in football is, is Cristiano Ronaldo or Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Yeah. You know, they put themselves out there with this massive public persona, but they actually have the results to back it up. And Ed Woodward simply hasn't. I mean, for me, I just think there are so many things that have gone wrong in this football club at Ed Woodward really has been at the heart of them. And, and then you look, the day before the Liverpool game, another press press report has been leaked. I think it was to the Daily Mail this time that United are considering hiring a new sporting director. As always, I yeah. mean, how many times have, have, have we seen that story drip-fed to the press over the last year and a half? Yeah. Ever since Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was brought into the club, every three, four weeks, there's a new story, story about who's being linked with our sporting director job. And yet, absolutely nothing has changed in it. And it's just... You know, the, don't think the timing being just before the Liverpool game is a coincidence, you know, that was purposely put out, I, I'm assuming, by the club. And bear in mind, I'm saying this is someone who doesn't, I'm not privy to anything going on in the club. So this is all my speculation, but it seems very obvious to me that this was put out as a way to try and fan the flames that were inevitably going to come from what was probably a defeat to Liverpool.
0: Yeah, in fairness, on the, on the sporting director thing, I find it slightly weird because that story and quite a lot of these director football things often... They don't come from the, the journalists you normally see being briefed by United. You know when you see it'll be like Saturday 10pm or something, you'll suddenly see uh, four journalists, Mark Ogden, James Ducker, uh, Simon Stone, a couple of others, and they'll all suddenly tweet basically exactly the same story on the Telegraph, the Times, the BBC, whatever it is. And this the director of football, the weird thing about it is. It's never really been like that. So occasionally it seems to appear to be brief, but it seems to me like United are happy with, with the current structure they've got. In in what they've said to the United We Stand fans and what they've said in, in conference calls to investors is that they think they've now improved recruitment because of one good summer and we're yet to see that is not evidence enough. And we're gonna move on.
1: Well, and, and I mean Go how good that summer was is yeah, been starting to being called into question it, a little bit as well. well. It was
0: a it was a good summer. That was it. It was it was it was average for what a top club should be doing. It's what United should be doing, in not just summer windows, but the equivalent of what they should be doing in January. I'm not saying you should always be signing three players in January, but you should be signing the players you need, and that's kind of what United did, just not to a big enough extent. And just finally, before we move on um, to the actual game itself, however painful it may be, but there was a I saw a quote on Twitter the other day from Stuart Weber who. Uh, no one will know. I didn't know. But he arrived at Norwich City in 2017. He's turned the club around. He's in kind of a sporting director mould. Now, United aren't aspiring to be like Norwich City, however much David Moyes might be intent on, on everyone <laughs> thinking that. But he said, and this is a, a full quote, he says about about turning a club around and, and blaming things on, on the manager or the head coach. Is, why not look a bit deeper? Maybe the culture wasn't right. Maybe the head coach needed some support. Instead, you put him on a pedestal and said, go and sort this out, will you? and that's exactly what manchester united have done with their last four managers and to be fair going further back than that sir alex ferguson didn't need any help but there was no structure at the same at, at that time either it was all down to him being what you would probably now call a direct... Silas Ferguson could be viewed as a director of football. He didn't often Yeah, he did both jobs, the- on and off the yeah. pitch. So United have never had that structure. And we are going to move on to the game, but that is my point. That That's why you will often hear me on here defending Ole social Solskjaer. And wherever you, if you follow me on Twitter or whatever, that's why I'll defend him, because I just think it's it's happened... It's been going on for so long. We've seen so many... Three managers fail. There's no point getting rid of another one yet and i i understand why people say well if he's not good enough for the job just get rid but i think he will do that he might do the job the the dirty work for someone else who can come in and eventually improve you know didn't
1: a few weeks ago there was an episode when me and you really got into it over social and i think we ultimately we both thought, sort of arrived at the same conclusion just with a, a different sort of way way of getting there i think we both acknowledge that changing the manager actually won't change too much about this football club they the problems that are existing are so systemic; it needs a complete overhaul of the systems that are governing the way that Man United are run. And I think there's a bigger and bigger recognition of that, not just in the fan base, but among the media as well. You look at Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher, people like that, even on sort of very mainstream media outlets. Now there seems to be more more of a recognition that changing this and and getting this football club back on its feet and back where it should be is going to take a massive, massive overhaul. And I think, you know, between the two of us, I've said, and I still stand by this, I don't think Solskjaer is the right man for the job. And I I would be in favour of moving to someone like Pochettino if they were available. But really that is simply because I think, regardless of who we have as manager, I don't think that much is going to change. It's not going to solve the issues. I just think Pochettino would get more out of the squad than we currently will. But he's not going to be taking us onto the sort of heights that Liverpool are at. I think he's simply maximise yeah. what we have in this squad but that doesn't change the fact that the recruit the recruitment over the last decade has been so poor that this squad even playing at their very maximum is probably going to finish second or third at best well
0: Mourinho got them playing not at their best but that's the best season United have had and, and we finished second and 19 points off Man City so there we yeah. go But the, the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's greatest weakness as Manchester United manager is letting the Glazer family and Edward would piss all over him and yeah. that and not putting pressure on them and, and calling them out and I, I completely understand why he's doing it but that is his biggest weakness is allowing this this farcical way that the football run, club is run to to continue. Right, let's let's move on to Manchester United against Liverpool at Anfield. Um, first on, on Solskjaer's tactics which United lost 2-0 and I, I feel ridiculous saying this but as it goes, we started the game okay until Van Dijk scored in, in the 14th minute. The United pressed Liverpool high. They stopped them getting any kind of rhythm. the The Brandon Williams and Luke Shaw starting together was an impressive idea and it, it doubled up on Salah, kept him very quiet. Andreas Pereira was playing as kind of that fake striker. He didn't have a very good game. Um, he didn't really touch the ball in that role and, and when he did touch the ball, it was pretty useless, but it meant Anthony Martial... Dan James either on the left or right wherever they were were putting the pressure on the Liverpool fullbacks and they were kept pretty quiet. So splitting those strikers, occupying the space that that Liverpool's fullbacks normally use was a clever start to the game.
1: Yeah, I didn't I didn't think Solskjaer did a bad job of, of setting us up actually. He clearly had a plan to try and neutralize Liverpool's fullbacks. I think that the the problem was that well there was a couple of issues. Firstly, when you have such terrible defensive organization and, and that ends up with Five foot seven Brandon Williams marking six foot four Virgil Van Dijk from a corner, that's going to cause you issues no matter what sort of tactics you have when the ball's in open play. But second, and this isn't really a fault of Solskjaer, Liverpool just have so many weapons that if you do take away their fullbacks, they'll start carving you, carving you open through midfield. I think it was probably the right decision to try and shut down those wide areas because you'd probably say central midfield is is the weakest area of Liverpool's team and trying to almost forced them to play through that, was probably the right decision. It ultimately just didn't work. And, and it. I think our whole tactics going into big games and playing on the counter-attack, regardless of which member of the top six we're playing against, relies on us not going goal behind, and especially not early on. And I think once that happened, we were always up against it because we were in this caught in this halfway house of trying to go for it and trying to get that goal back, but consciously... But yeah. always, always being conscious of not leaving ourselves too exposed to the back. Yeah,
0: well, in, it, I think the last five minutes of the of the first half were a big example of that. Is that there was a, a couple of moments where Fred was storming forward. We'll move on to Fred because he had a great game in a second. But where Fred would storm forward with the ball and you'd look around, and you'd see Martial and James up there because they were already up there. And then everyone was kind of waiting on the halfway line, just waiting yeah. for that ridiculously quick Liverpool counter-attack that they've, they've kind of mastered over the last few years. To, to come into play and United was scared and then that period of 10 minutes of the second half was absolutely terrifying uh, where you thought they were going <laughs> to score another four and then they didn't. United defended okay. This is before I I wasn't planning to, to talk about this but the United's defenders weirdly you kept looking at them and they all they all made a couple of mistakes and yet at the same time they all had okay games. So uh, throughout the game you were thinking, Oh sure, what are you doing? You're not good enough, Lindelof, oh what are you doing, Maguire, the same thing, wambasaka the same thing and yet actually they kept Liverpool out for, for most of the game until the until the Salah won and apart from one stupid uh mistake at a corner for, for Van Dyke's goal. But moving on to that, the zona market set pieces for all of the, the good of the, the double fullback and the split strikers from Solskjaer in the in the lineup, that it was a death wish. Not for the first time this season that we've been completely exposed by a good delivery from from a corner, and Brandon Williams was for some reason responsible for blocking Van Dyke's run. Um, He looked at the ball for a second, and and Van Dyke's headed home, and Maguire and Matic can't get to him, and they should have been on him at the start. I mean,
1: I absolutely hate zonal marking. Honestly, I think it's just absolutely asking asking for trouble. How on earth can you expect someone from a static jump to be getting up as high and with as much momentum as someone who's got a ten yard run on you? It's just ridiculous to me. But regardless of that, regardless of whether you've got zonal marking, man marking, try and thinking that Brandon Williams has any chance of stopping the man-mounting mountain is Virgil van Dijk. As you said, it's a death wish. It's just asking for trouble. And in some way, I don't know whether to feel sorry for Solskjaer or to be livid with Solskjaer because in some ways I think you know he's obviously taken a lot of time during the week to come up with a specific plan to stop one of Liverpool's strong points. And he's either been betrayed by his team who have just in a moment absolutely had a loss of concentration and a brain failure and let let that happen or there hasn't been enough organisation throughout the week to make sure that, that that zonal marking is done properly. I mean, yeah. if you think about defending set pieces from Liverpool, this isn't like it was sort of the last person you think of that came in with that towering header. It's Virgil van Dijk. I mean, who else are you going to be thinking about when you're thinking about defending set pieces from Liverpool? Yeah. So I, I don't know whether to question the, the defence or Solskjaer but whoever it was, it was, I, I mean, as you said, it was a death warrant. Yeah,
0: and, yeah I get what you mean about feeling sorry for him but at the same time that was that was ridiculously stupid and so the the way United set out was I genuinely think was, was really clever and it was innovative and you don't see a lot of, your, a yeah, lot of teams doing that and in, in the October game in, at Old Trafford United employed slightly different tactics but again it worked quite well I remember at Crystal Palace away last year it was a, a similar idea with the two full-backs with Ashley Young started at right-back Diogo Dallow started on the right wing but basically as a, a secondary right-back and it, it completely kept Wilfred Zaha quiet problem when you play Liverpool is they've got well, three or four Wilfred Zahars at least in, in Salah, Mane, Firmino yeah. and, and whoever. But, but I
1: mean, I, I I think, like I said, I think for me, I'd much rather us try and take away Liverpool's main threat, which this season has been their wide players play and their fullbacks and then almost force them to say, go on then beat us with the worst part of your team, which is their central midfield. Yeah. And unfortunately, they're such a good team that they are good enough to beat, beat us with
0: their central midfield. They're an example. Um, I remember saying this a few weeks ago is that United... In fact, I I asked Edgar Solskjaer about this once, about how United's fullbacks just just aren't offering enough in attack. And in fairness, I think wan has actually improved a, a fair bit in the last month. He's still nowhere near yeah. good enough attacking-wise in terms of output, but he's getting a little better. Um, and Brandon Williams is off, obviously offering enough uh, uh, much more. But United's problem is that when they can't play in the counter-attack, there's, there's no variety in the game. Because the midfield is clearly not good enough... He can't fix that without bringing in new players, and there's there's nothing you can say to that. Literally, the the midfield players aren't good enough to be creating for United, particularly Pereira, Lingard, and occasionally Matildo. The he-
1: ball just doesn't get moved moved quickly yeah. enough. Everyone, you know, it's a common misconception about counter attacking football that you just need fast attackers to to be making great runs and and dribbling past anyone. But that's only half the story. If the ball is taking 15, 20 seconds to get to them, it doesn't matter how fast they are because the other team's going to have five, six players back and easily be able to shut it down. It relies on having at least one or two players who are able to get the ball from defence to attack within two or three seconds of us winning the ball back. Yeah,
0: right. We're going to say something positive in a second, but just before that, because we're going to talk about Fred, Williams and Shaw, all who had very good games. Um, But I thought yesterday... You could look at every position on that pitch and take something away that United that that United player had to learn from the opposite number, and particularly Alisson and De Gea, because yeah, I thought De Gea came under a lot of scrutiny after quite obviously being fouled by Van Dyke for uh, a ruled out uh, Roberto Firmino goal. I, I don't know how there was a debate over that because Van Dyke basically stopped him from catching the ball. Anyway, we won't talk about that. But aside from that incident, De Gea made a couple of crucial saves. He denied Sadio Mani yeah. in the second half. A couple of good catches from long shots which otherwise could have landed at the feet of Salah Firmino or Mane whatever and the goals were pretty much unstoppable the second goal he, he probably could have saved actually but the difference between De Gea and Alisson was shown in that second goal for Liverpool where the latter delivered a fantastic ball to give Salah the chance and De Gea's distribution is so far off that and you could do that throughout the teams you could look at, at how they performed and Liverpool didn't have one of their best days and still you could look at each position and think i Well, I think I
1: think you're right that that is a great example of the difference between United and Liverpool squads, in that I don't think David Hayer did a lot wrong in that game yesterday. I think he saved the shots that you would expect him to save. He made a couple of very good saves. As you said, the goals he had, couldn't really do anything about. And yet, there wasn't a moment where he did anything spectacular. It wasn't a moment where you think that's a match-winning moment. And and that's not a criticism of David De Gea. He's won us more matches than anyone else over the last five or six years. But I think that is a it's a it's a theme that goes around the entirety of our team. I don't think that many players in our squad had, had bad games yesterday, quite frankly. I think a lot of them played pretty much how you'd expect. But the difference is that No one had a match-winning moment. There was no one on that pitch that you looked at for Man United and thought they're going to do something spectacular to win us this game. Whereas you look around Liverpool's team and you think at any given time, probably seven or eight players on the pitch could win them the game. And in the end, it was Alisson that did it, which I mean, wasn't that expected. But I think it's a good example of the difference between the two squads in that Liverpool's squad is chock full of match winners. And I think really the only one that we have is Marcus Rashford, unfortunately, wasn't playing.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And with Rashford, how would the game have gone? We we can't say. And it's pointless saying because that that is the it is part of, of being a football team, is having some actual depth in your side. United certainly don't have that. Now, the first positive we're going to talk about is Fred. Um, he came under some quite consistent criticism early on, and rightly so. And, and this was his best performance for Manchester United. Um, and it comes in a in a good spell for him. He dominated the second half against a very good Liverpool side and helped United to cope with the early onslaught in the second half and then started bringing the ball out into the final third with a number of of, of these powerful dribbles that we haven't really seen from the strength to hold off um, his marker, his defender. And, and I remember I was thinking about this yesterday after I'd, I'd written a piece praising Fred saying, and I thought, I need to I need to say this because on this podcast and in other places I said after I think it was after the Chelsea game in the in the League Cup where he had another good performance and I said, Well, it's too early to say. I said, he's still losing the ball too much, he's he's had a couple of good games, but he's losing possession too much and he's he's benefiting from a, a United side that around him is playing better. This was different. This is this was Fred dragging United through the game and that's why it's moved on now. I I'm not going to say he gives away the ball too much, even though sometimes he does. And I'm not going to say this is a temporary thing, even though it might be because he's now put in enough good consecutive performances. He's dragged United through games. He's being the main midfielder and he deserves the praise for that.
1: Absolutely. This isn't just a flash in the pan at this point. This isn't just two or three decent performances against relatively weak opposition in a United side that is generally improving. This is him consistently standing out above anyone else in our team, pretty much regardless of the performance of everyone else around him. And that's one of the criticisms that I often had of Fred, is that his performances seem to ebb and flow with the rest of the team around him. If the if United had, had a good game as a whole, he would have a pretty good game. But if the players around him weren't having a great game, he would sort of dip to that level. And recently yeah. that hasn't been the case at all. He's been at carrying our midfield through games almost single-handedly a lot of the time. And yesterday... He was absolutely everywhere on the pitch. He carried the ball forward well. His distribution was a lot better than it has been over the past sort of year or so. Didn't give the ball away too often. And I mean, defensively, and this has been a trend, to be fair to Fred, has yeah. been a trend that's been going on for, well, probably about six or seven months now. In that defensively, he's just absolutely everywhere. He covers, seems to cover so much ground every single game. And it just seems like he pops up a lot of, just in, in sort of areas you don't yeah. expect him to be in. It, it's a massive attribute that he brings to our yeah, midfield. Yeah, and I
0: thought, I thought after the Gara tweeted this, actually, I said, is that the best midfield performance from United play in the last few years? And Pop in the second half at City in the 3-2 win springs to mind. McTominay's had a couple of good ones. Pop has had a, a couple of very good ones, but I think it is one of the best we've seen recently and it speaks volumes that it comes in a 2-0 loss at Anfield, but there we go. Right, we're not going to spend too long on Williams and Shaw. They were very good. Fair play to them, but we should, we should move on. We're, we're running over, but Marcus Rashford, um, the the blatant lesson learned from that loss at Liverpool is that Marcus Rashford is United are very reliant on on Marcus Rashford and are now in trouble he was carrying a a single stress factor in his back now has a double stress factor after the Wolves game expected to be out for two or three months he's also got a piece of floating bone in his ankle requiring some surgery I think that's what Paul Popper had at at some point as well and he's been playing through immense pain to, to help Manchester United now we're not gonna we haven't got time to get into who, who is to blame for Rashford getting injured, why the medical team didn't stop playing him, why Solskjaer played him, why Rashford himself didn't say, No, I can't play. Clearly he shouldn't have been playing in that Wolves game, he shouldn't be playing before that because he's he's reportedly been playing in pain for a long time. The the problem now is that United are gonna find it incredibly hard to replace him, whether that's in the long term or the short term option this this January, because every club wants a striker in January. That is the position that gets you whatever your goal is, it gets you into the top four. It keeps you from relegation. It keeps you in the title race. Every club around Europe is looking for a new striker in January. So United are going to have some serious trouble if they do want to replace him.
1: Yeah, and this was the, the big worry about getting rid of Lukaku over the summer. As much as I supported that move and I still think it was the right decision to get rid of Romelu Lukaku, getting rid of him with no one coming in to replace him was a huge risk because now we end up in a situation where just one injury really leaves us with no viable sort of experience uh, alternatives I mean I'm not, not being funny but Mason Greenwood for as, as good as he's been is probably now going to be relied upon to start every other game for, for the next couple relied of months upon too much yeah exactly and, and you know we praised Solskjaer and praised the club a couple of weeks ago for the fact that they have eased in Mason Greenwood really well and sort of kept him from that spotlight a little bit That that's not going to be able to happen now because we don't have the, de- the, the strength and depth to be able to deal with just one injury to one of our attackers which is quite frankly, a ridiculous situation to be in for a club of our of our resources. I mean, the big name that's being linked at the moment with not just United, but a lot of other clubs is, is Edinson Cavani, who have supposedly has handed in a transfer request at PSG. We'll see whether anything actually yeah. actually comes from that. But I mean, again, it's a, it, it would have he's to be been, a short-term solution because he's, he's an ageing striker who, in three or four years, won't, won't be offering us too much.
0: Yeah, he's been linked to Let's Go Madrid a lot. So I'm not sure United have any any chance of getting Cavani in yeah. the one and,
1: what, and Chelsea seem to be in the running yeah. for him as well the one
0: that interests me I I've, I've, haven't i have watched enough football outside of, of the Premier League this year to to really say and, and comment on strikers obviously United didn't get Erling Haaland um, the one that interests me is, is Paco Alcacer because obviously Haaland's just gone to Dortmund they've got a pretty set yeah. front three and Alcacer has a reputation of going into pretty much any situation and then scoring goals so he, even though he was sold by Barcelona even though he's not starting for Dortmund when he does play he tends to score a lot so it's it's a possible one we'll, maybe we'll talk more about it next week although we are coming very near to the end of January so that is a slight Yeah and,
1: and as you said striker is always the, the most coveted position in January and there's a reason why clubs have to pay such a premium in January to get the players they want there they just aren't many top players available and I mean judging by it, the way that the uh, the Bruno Fernandes negotiations seem to be going I don't have much confidence that we'd be able to get even, maybe even one player over the line in January let alone Fernandes and the striker
0: yeah that's a it's an interesting situation and to be honest I it's it's very frustrating following it as a united fan and I've kind of just I've stopped looking at anything now because I'm not that interested in it if united get it done then they get it done if they don't then they don't um but Sporting are absolutely desperate for, for money at the moment and I think it's one of those that they're just pushing for, for more and more and then, and it's, it's, a, it's a really tricky situation for United and it's one of the rare examples why I f- feel sorry for United's transfer negotiating team over the last few years given their failures but this one is, is tricky because Sporting are kind of notoriously difficult to deal with and are constantly trying to push the yeah. price up. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that, right? We better move on to our youth loan and women's roundup. United's under-23s haven't been in action for 10 days now. We're recording this on Monday evening and they don't return until the 31st of January when they travel to Norwich. But the more important game is also at Norwich this week and it's the under-18s in the FA Youth Cup at the Canaries' Carroll Road Stadium. This is a a fantastic opportunity to progress for United. Last season they were beaten in this round by Brighton after a dramatic 4-3 win against Chelsea in the third round. United this season came through the third round uh, with a 2-0 home win against Lincoln City. Norwich will provide a, a sterner test then in that game at Lee Sports Village. You can expect to see names like Hannibal Medjbreed, Ted and Mengi and Charlie McCann in the team, as well as, as, well as Dylan Huggeverf. Anthony Alang is a, a young Swedish winger. He's been with the under-23s primarily this season, but still could drop down if United think it's necessary. The under-18s haven't played this weekend because of this FA Youth Cup tie, rearranging a scheduled clash against Liverpool. Chris Morling was in action for Roma this week, as usual, as they beat Genoa 3-1. Alexis Sanchez was a late sub for Inter Milan against Lecce. Ethan Hamilton is getting some game time at Bolton Wanderers, which is good. They played Portsmouth this weekend. He was recalled recently from an unsuccessful spell at the South End. In the goalkeeping department, Joel Pereira is starting regularly for Hearts in Scotland. They beat Adrianian's 4-0 in the Scottish Cup this weekend. Jacob Carney was in action for Stocksbridge and Alex Fogicek for Stalybridge Celtic. George Tanner and Max Taylor both started for their respective clubs this weekend and Dean Henderson had another great game for Sheffield United in a draw at the Emirates. All of United's players who could play this weekend started except for Alexis Sanchez, so the loan department is doing a, a good job at the moment in terms of finding the right clubs for the right players. That's not always been the case in recent years. Manchester United's women's teams continue their good first season in the Women's Super League as Arsenal and Chelsea met in a title clash at a sold-out ground. United beat Brighton 2 1 in the WSL Cup in midweek and then followed that up with a 3-0 demolition of Tottenham Hotspur, all three goals coming in the second half from Katie Zellum and Jess Sigsworth. They now face Manchester City in the Women's FA Cup on Saturday with a twelve forty five kickoff at Lee Sports Village. Right, United's men's team play against Burnley. Wednesday, a slightly strange kick-off time of 8.15 at Old Trafford. It will be a, a slightly strange atmosphere after losing at Anfield. Um, a midweek home game at 8.15 against Burnley is not probably going to get Old Trafford uh, rocking as it has been in, in some times over the, over the last few few months. Um this is a, a game that uh, there's not much to say about. It. United have to win. United have to get back into into what has been okay form recently. There's been disappointing performances against Wolves. There's been uh, the the terrible defeat to Man City. But there's been some good performances as well. And United need now need to find some consistency. Um, and certainly win because we've got City coming up after that and then we've got the, before that we've got the FA Cup fourth round against whoever knows whoever we're playing
1: yeah I mean the fact that we still don't know our FA Cup opponent a week away from the game is quite ridiculous it's um, mental yeah. but, and, and you know just just brilliant for fans who want to go to the game but anyway regardless of the FA's in- incompetence a before, yeah. yeah exactly regardless of the FA's incompetence I think you're right that the Burnley game is yeah, it's, pr- it's probably going to be a pretty subdued atmosphere at Old Trafford I would have thought it's, it, the Liverpool. The timing of the Liverpool game game has ended up being a potential blessing but also a curse in that you're right there had actually been some pretty positive form recently I think there was a, a better feeling starting to come across at the club That a lot of the fans were starting to not necessarily get on side with Oli but I think a lot of them had been sort of pacified from what was a pretty toxic, a toxic situation over Christmas and now after such a brutal loss to Liverpool all of that positive feeling seems to have gone away again I think, I mean, you want to say that it should be a comfortable game against Burnley and it should, but I mean, as we've said so many times this season, these are the types of games that we struggle in every single week. And so I'd be very surprised if this is a comfortable win. Burnley aren't like a team like Norwich who tend to come out and and actually play some, some football and try to play their own way. I think Burnley will sit deep try to soak up as much pressure as they can and hit us on the counter-attack and from their perspective why not because it's worked for so many other teams already this season
0: yeah I mean that is what they're going to try to do they've just had a a great result against Leicester and um, they after I think it was four consecutive Burnley which was terrible form for for a team that have pretty much been consistent but their players kind of always find find a way to to get out of trouble um, under Sean Dyche so yeah they'll look to counter-attack they'll look to sit back and we'll probably see Juan Mata in the team again Um, who was responsible for breaking down Norwich and and then kind of Wolves as well, it will be an interesting one prediction. Go with...
1: A boring 1-1 one, one draw ah oh,
0: that's disappointing I was expecting some, some positive oh, I wasn't expecting some positive I was hoping for some positivity I'm going to go with the t- come
1: on a- this is the Manchester United weekly podcast we <laughs> uh, we haven't done positivity in five years well we
0: started in 2016 we haven't been given much opportunity although I I remember yeah. we were doing our, our end of decade review and we do have to remember we've won the Europa League League Cup and FA Cup in recent years so but not everything is bad but most things are pretty disappointing as a United fan at the moment but we'll <laughs> I'm going to go for a 2-0 United win saying that Marcus Rashford isn't playing and I've kind of got it in my head that we've got Marcus Rashford now to pull us through certain games and we haven't so I'm going to go with a, a 2-1 United win instead I don't know why that would affect the number of, of, of goals conceded <laughs> but there we go and then we've got the FA Cup we either play in Watford or Tranmere away I was saying to chat before the we started recording I was looking at going to this away but at the moment I don't know if I'm going to near Liverpool or near London so we'll see about that but that will be a Sunday afternoon um, and the women's play in the uh, play City I think uh, this weekend at Lee Sports Village so go, go to that game if, if you can and support Casey Stony side, right. That's all we have time for on the Manchester United weekly podcast which isn't always negative as Jack was alluding to there but for more from us throughout the week however <laughs> negative or positive it may be you can we find... go
1: with we go with whatever United give us which exactly. unfortunately tends to be largely negative very true <laughs> but we're,
0: we're doing it with a, a smile on our face so for more from Jack throughout the week on Twitter you can find him
1: at, at UTDTait T-A-I-T
0: and you can find me on Twitter at Harry Robinson 64 and the podcast itself at UTDWeeklyPod that's P-O-D at the end there if you are enjoying the show please leave us a review on iTunes it helps especially when The Athletic have just launched their um money funded new podcast about Manchester United so there we go but enjoy the week have a good one um enjoy Manchester United in Burnley not the most attractive games but there we go goodbye